0: Thanks so much for the Raising Adults podcast, Future-Focused Parenting. Raising Adults is grounded in the future-focused parenting philosophy. Start with the end in mind. The co-host, Kira and Dina, are both parent coaches, doulas, and moms with a collective background in education, mental health, childbirth, child development, and more. They're all about helping families find the why behind the how, helping them parent with a strong intention, being proactive instead of reactive, and preventative instead of diagnostic. Understanding your why helps you do what is best instead of what is quick or easy. They talk about a large range of topics, coming at each of them with a long-range view, and they know parents are busy, so episodes are short, about 30 minutes long. All of their ideas are customizable because they're all about finding your why, which is unique to every family, and they laugh a lot, and are dynamic hosts who make you feel like you're sitting down to coffee with friends. Check out... Raising Adults, the podcast. You can follow them on all major platforms, podcast platforms, and on Instagram and Facebook at Future Focused Parenting or futurefocusedparenting.com. Vince Granada is the author of Everything is Fine, a memoir. Vince received his BA in History from Yale University and his MFA in Creative Writing from American University. He has received fellowships from the Breadloaf Writers Conference. Virginia Center for the Creative Arts, Brush Creek Foundation for the Arts, the I-Park Foundation, and the U-Cross Foundation, plus residencies from Playa and the McDowell Colony. His work has appeared in the Massachusetts Review, the Chattahoochee Review, and Fourth Genre, and has been nominated for a Pushcart Prize and listed as notable in Best American Essays 2018. Vince's memoir is so powerful and amazing. I was just honored to talk to him. Welcome, Vince. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you so much for having me. So your memoir, Everything is Fine. Everything was not fine, obviously. Tell me about your decision to write about what happened in your life. And maybe if you can, just let people in on the events that inspired the book.
3: Absolutely. So the book follows my family's story and explores how my family was impacted by schizophrenia. And most of the the book involves my brother, my younger brother Tim, who became ill shortly after attending college or starting college, so in his late teens. And his illness progressed over the span of several years, and there were many challenges to getting him the care that he needed. And though he was hospitalized, and though we tried to sort of marshal whatever resources we could to help him, we weren't able to help him get a handle on his schizophrenia tragically he was living at home for several months and during that time began to get these hallucinations that involved our mother and he killed her when the two of them were home alone together about seven years ago now so the book tries to you know reconstruct how we arrived at that tragic day and then also track sort of how we lived afterwards in the aftermath
0: what is it, how are you able to do these publicity interviews and have to talk about all this stuff over and over again? I mean, this must be really hard. This is traumatic, awful personal stuff. Like, are you okay even talking? I feel guilty even like making you dive into it no, no, on like one o'clock on a Tuesday. Maybe he doesn't want to talk about this right now. You know, how are you, how are you holding up having this part of your life be so public?
3: No, that's, I mean, in some ways it'll always be challenging to, to speak about this time in my life and, and these these elements of my family. But for a long time, for sort of a year after this happened, I didn't speak about it at all. I sort of tried to put all that stuff in a box and compartmentalize. And I didn't write at all. Didn't think I would ever write this particular book. And all that happened with all of that effort to sort of, you know, shove it away was I was just sort of eating myself on the inside. And it became very clear to me that writing was going to be a way for me to begin to contend with all of these things that I couldn't really bear to look at otherwise. And I don't even necessarily know if that's, you know, the most healthy way to deal with trauma, but for me, writing was that tool. It was something that that had been a part of my life for, you know, since I was in the third grade. So that felt like the means, if there was any means by which I could get some control over this out of control story, it had to be through writing. And by spending lots of time on that writing, it became easier to have conversations like this one, even though, you know, obviously the the trauma still seven years later, still, you know, Echoes very sharply.
0: While you were writing it, did you show anybody? Did you keep it sort of close to your heart and and wait till the end? I'm curious as to how you dealt with that process.
3: So I was very lucky when I started writing this book to have just started a, a graduate school program, on MFA in creative writing. And at that program, I met a man who would become my mentor. And if I if I choke up a little bit now, he he recently passed. Oh um, no. Now, he was an incredibly special person, an incredible writer. Uh, his name was Richard McCann, and he worked with me for, for three years. And early on, when I was starting this book, I would only you know show it to him. I didn't feel like I could be that vulnerable with other people at first. But even more than that, I was really afraid that someone would see this piece of writing and just feel sort of overwhelming sympathy for me and not be able to sort of engage with it as, you know, a series of ideas, as a story that I hope has greater purpose than just to, you know, explain something sad that happened. But eventually over time, I I, I did begin to share work as part of my graduate program. And then, you know, reaching out when it came time to, you know, try to move this towards publication. And I mean, that process was, was essential. We all have blind spots in our writing that we can't see until another set of eyes are, are on it. So that was absolutely essential for me.
0: Well, you also, you clearly, there's this traumatic emotional story to tell, but you're a really great writer as well, which, you know, obviously since third grade, you've been interested in writing. So the way in which it comes across is just so like gripping and vivid. Like you feel like you're in there, all the details of your home and just all of it down to everything you discovered through your research, going back through all the files recreating that whole day. I mean, you you feel like you're living it with you. And now you have all these sort of readers who have, like, you feel like you live it when you dive into someone's words. So it's really incredible the way you've made it come alive, unfortunately, and that we all, we share your pain now because we like are living it with you in a way. That sounds ridiculous, but I hope you know what I mean.
3: No, I, I hear you. And it seems weird to say, you know, thank you for... Yeah. <laughs> for that, but I, I do appreciate you saying that. And I think while there are certain elements of the experience that are, you know, impossible to convey, I, I do hope that there can at least be some moments where the reader feels some shared element of, of the story that, that resonates. So I really appreciate you saying that.
0: You know, there were, there were also parts of the story Which shows some of your distance, right, from where you were then to your Mm -hmm. reflections on it now. In particular, the doctor who was consulting with your family, like, right up until the morning of the incident and how you viewed it. It was easy to have the doctor be the scapegoat, right? Like, why didn't he insist that Tim get put into you know, inpatient care right away? Or why didn't he make your mom call the police? Or why this or that? And yet when you went over it enough over the years, you kind of had a different attitude. Can you tell me, just tell me a little bit more about that?
3: No, absolutely. I, I think in the the immediate aftermath and even, you know, a year out from this trauma, I, I looked for a lot of easy scapegoats. It It just felt easier to be angry at what I thought were sort of immediate villains who turned out not to be villains at all including you know, many of the people who, who treated Tim. I, I looked back over Tim's medical records and when I found their names, I would you know, circle them and put angry little notes in the margins and just kind of have a temper tantrum, honestly, because that was the only way I knew at that time to, to try to process any of this. And as more time went on, as I learned more about the systems of care that failed my brother, I realized that these were the only people that, that even tried and that the more I learned and the more I really investigated my family's story, I could start to see how systemically there were bigger factors that are, that were to blame. And I could have start to look at myself as well and realize all that I didn't know during sort of the lead up to, to what happened in my family and could start to think a little bit more critically about what I could have done or, or what I didn't do.
0: So I bet people reading will be thinking like, Oh my gosh, I could never have made it through. How do you go? How do you pick up and like wake up and take a shower and have the day when like you've had this experience? Like how, how do you go on, when something like this has, has happened. And yet here you are, right. You're a published author and you've, you're, you've obviously got dressed and <laughs> like you're living your life. Like what do you say to people who are wondering that or people who are sort of in the post traumatic state themselves from something else? Like you're almost a, a role model of sorts, which I'm sure you don't want that you know burden to to bear at all, but at least you can say that you're, still showing up each day, which is a victory in and of itself. So tell me a little about that.
3: It's the love of other people. I wish I had an answer that involved, you know, three things that I did to make sure I brushed my teeth every night. But I know without without a doubt that if I didn't have people who cared deeply about me in my life, I, you know, I'm not sure if I would have made it through that year, let alone write a single sentence about this. So one thing I try to describe in the book and I think if you know there's something I could have spent more time on, it's the impact that my family members and my close friends and loved ones had on me during this time. And even when I didn't think I was a particularly lovable person during this this aftermath, they were right there with me. And none of
2: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen
3: this, and, you know, this being the book, this being me getting dressed this morning, this being me, you know, able to kind of move forward in my life would have happened without that, that support.
0: You write so well about when your friends organized the, not like surprise party, I don't know what to call it exactly, but your friends all rallied together, right? And you went over there in the brain foggy Aftermath moment, and just got to sit with your friends and be there, and they were just by your side. And there was one friend in particular who you were so grateful for. I'm blanking on his name right now, of course.
3: Charlie, Charlie. actually just spoke on the phone with him a half hour
0: ago. Oh, that's amazing! And you don't always see such examples of amazing deep male friendship, right? This is like very common in a women's book, right? We're all talking about our friends all the time, but it was so amazing to see how they showed up for you and how much you got out of that.
3: No, and they've, they've continued to show up for me even sort of after the, that immediate aftermath. And I mean, I, I think saying that I'm lucky doesn't quite capture it, but in addition to being lucky to have surrounded myself with those type of friends, it was just really affirming in that moment to have someone recognize me as the person I was for the 27 years before the tragedy, because I think one of the most immediate effects I felt of the trauma was just feeling very distant from myself Mm -hmm. and feeling alienated, you know, even from my own reflection in the mirror. I, I had trouble recognizing myself and placing myself so before I could even really think about who I was before all this happened, I had other people recognize those those pieces of me and that that helped me back into myself more than just about anything.
0: Wow. I have to say, as I was reading it, I stopped sort of midway through and I was like, all right, I have to see what everybody looks like, right? Because I had, you know, in fiction, you, you get all these ideas in your head. So I stopped. And then of yeah. course there were all these articles. So then I was thinking, oh my gosh, on top of all of this, then you had to deal with like the fact that the press was involved. And I mean, I should have thought, I mean, obviously, I, don't, I just didn't, Really, you had to deal with like another layer, you know, including even your compassion for the journalist who was like taking, a, or the photographer rather, who was taking the picture of you, like coming out of the courthouse that eventually, you know, they got rid of. But that you had that added added layer to contend with. What was that like?
3: Deeply strange doesn't doesn't quite cover it, but I can remember that the the part that felt the hardest to sort of rectify was that by nature, you know, in in local news reporting, whether it be sort of a news clip or a headline in a newspaper, there's only so much space for them to sort of describe what happened. I mean, at that point too, I I also didn't know a lot of the details of my own story. And so it it bothered me early on. and, And this is really through no fault of the journalists who are just working in the medium that they were given. They couldn't capture every element of the story. They couldn't show how this wasn't just this, you know, sort of sensationalized, tragic event. And I think more than anything, what I, what I hope the book can do for Tim in particular is to, to show him as someone who is more than just, you know, this, this person who happened to have this disease that spun out of control that led to this traumatic, tragic event. So I, I do hope that, you know, because I have, you know, you know, 300 pages to work with here, I can capture a lot of the moments that you can't see when you just read sort of a, a short report in the news
0: And what is, what's like today's update? Like, where are all of your siblings? Like what's going on with your family? Now I feel like I have the right to pry into your life, which of course I don't. (laughs) What's like the postscript from today's vantage point?
3: I really appreciate you asking that question. And I mean, I think to start with Tim makes, makes the most sense. And he and I spoke on the phone yesterday. We, we are still in close touch, uh, though I haven't been able to visit him in person for, you know, the last year, but he has now for just about four years been consistently and voluntarily on medication. He has moved through several steps. He is no longer at the most maximum security facility. And he's, I mean, it's, it's, it's simultaneously really affirming to describe how thoughtful and how caring a person he is and how our conversations are, you know, sprawling and cover all sorts of things. And to see him that way, it's, it it feels great, but it also is incredibly painful because it's just this reminder that none of this had to happen. He didn't have to, he didn't have to go down this particular path, but he is, he is progressing well. He's turning 30 in September. And there's, there are many reasons for hope that he'll have a life, a very rich life, you know, going forward. I, I am very hopeful. And my, my sister, Lizzie, and my brother, Chris, are, are both doing well uh, as well. And they I mean, they've achieved so much in their, in their various fields, and they're, they're living very full lives. And my, my dad is still in Connecticut, and, and he and I speak very often. We've all spoken about the book and, and sort of the challenges therein. But we're, we're doing the best we can.
0: Wow. So how, when you sat down to do this, like, how long did this take? I mean, I know you said it was a multi-year process. Was there ever a point where you got, I'm sorry, at the end of your program where, well, tell me, well, tell me more about, I guess, the timing and the process.
3: Sure. I, so I started this graduate program just a little over a year after my mom died. I'd I'd been a high school English teacher and I was sort of edging my way out of teaching even before this happened in my family. And it was actually the, the third to last conversation I had with my mom was about my writing and about how I had sort of set it aside for most of the years I was teaching so I, I had known before that I wanted to take my writing more seriously, and I thought about graduate programs. But when I began the, the grad program that I, that I started, I didn't think that I was actually going to write nonfiction. I thought I was going to write fiction. But shortly after arriving and meeting Richard McCann, it became clear that this was the story I had to tell. It didn't feel like a choice at first, at least. So I began really in the fall of, of 2015, and for about the next three years, sort of wrote what at first was a series of essays and then became a memoir. And after that three year period, there was about another year of, of revising and sort of, you know, shopping it around and seeing if anyone was interested. So I think there was sort of four years of, of writing and revising, and then, you know, sort of a year year and a half of of sort of publishing stuff getting sorted out. So it was, it was a long, a long period. And I think it, it had to be a long period for a number of reasons. You know, one, I was learning how to write this kind of book. I, had written fiction beforehand. I'd studied fiction beforehand. I'd read predominantly fiction beforehand. I I didn't know much about the genre and I had to learn those things. And it was also very helpful to work through this over a long period of time so that I could get a bit of distance and understand certain elements of the story that, that felt too immediate and too, you know, still too sharp. I think when he started writing a year after.
0: Well, it's like not the worst part, but the fact that, now, of course, you still have to deal with the loss of your mom, right, forever. That's not something that can ever, you know, that's like, I don't know, I've had loss in my life. And I think one of the things about it is just the finality of it. Like, there's nothing you can do. You can't be like, oh, I should have gone this way on that drive. Next time I'll go that way. Or there's nothing you can do about it, which mm-hmm. for me has always been the biggest sort of stumbling block of the whole thing. Like, you're always going to have that grief and that loss. Like, how do you maintain her connection, right? Because I think that's, how do you keep her sort of alive in your mind? Do you, how do you process that grief and sort of carry her spirit with you, if you
3: will? And I appreciate you asking that question. And, and again, I wish I had a, a simple answer. And I, I know I mentioned just previously that, that one of the last things that we we spoke about, my mother and I was, was my writing. If we hadn't had that conversation, I think writing this book would have been much more difficult. And, you know, while I know I can't, take that conversation as sort of like one of her final wishes. And that would be reading a bit too much into that, that exchange. I think about that conversation with her so much and think about how much time I've spent since she died writing and how she knew what writing meant to me and how writing this book is as close as I can come to, you know, having a conversation with her or thinking about sort of, you know, her impact on my life to this day. So I, unavoidably whenever I write, she's, she's right there with me.
0: I'm so sorry. I'm just so sorry that you lost her.
3: Well, I appreciate you saying that. Thank you.
0: Do you have any advice for aspiring authors?
3: Well, I, I I think aspiring authors, maybe speaking specifically here to people who are trying to write memoir or essay or, or specifically writing about traumatic experiences and difficult experiences, because I think many people, you know, like like me feel at some point the urge to try to sort through difficult memories in writing. And I think starting that process is incredibly terrifying, it, at least it was for me. And if I didn't have someone like Richard to sort of coax me along those early moments, I don't know if I would have started. So I, I guess I would say if you can find someone who you can trust who's, you know, someone who's done some sort of writing like this before, who kind of knows the ways that this this type of writing can, you know, both help you process trauma, but also at times, you know, make some things more difficult to handle. To have that kind of voice in your life as you're going through this type of writing is is invaluable. So I would say try to find someone you can you can attach yourself to in that way. Excellent.
0: Well, thank you Vince. I'm thank you for sharing your experience. I'm sorry for everything you've gone through. Thank you for using your words to help other people who will benefit from reading this no matter what they're going through in so many ways and just that we got to know the people in your family so well. I mean, I feel like I know your mom and Tim and your siblings and you certainly from your, how you wrote about them. So I feel privileged to have gotten to know her in this way.
3: I'm very glad to hear you say that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Bye. -bye. Thanks.
0: Thanks to Kira and Dina for sponsoring our episode with their Raising Adults podcast, futurefocusedparenting.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books.